0: Every movement starts somewhere. For our guest, Gene Zubovich, understanding the history of religious movements is his passion. In this episode, we explore his take on liberal Protestants and American politics, after the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service. And check out our upcoming events at UpperHouse.org.
0: Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan Hummel, Director of University Engagement at Upper House, here in beautiful Madison, Wisconsin. In this episode, I sat down with my friend and fellow historian, Gene Zubovich, to learn from him about a sliver of religious history that I've always wanted to have a better grasp of. Before jumping into that, one quick story about Gene. A few years ago, we were both at an academic conference in Washington, D.C., and had enough free time to sneak away to the Bible Museum. Many listeners might have heard of this newish place, about 10 years old, right on the Washington Mall. I'll limit my review to saying that it's got both strengths and weaknesses as a museum. But undoubtedly the highlight of the visit for me was getting Jean's unique insights, especially on the American history portions of the tour. I also remember us people watching the very diverse and interesting tour groups coming through the museum. And for all I know, someone else was people watching the two of us. Well, the basis for our conversation today is Jean's recently released book titled Before the Religious Right, Liberal Protestants, Human Rights, and the Polarization of the United States. Gene explores some of the events that led to the polarization we see in both our politics and the church. More than anything else, we get to hear from Gene about a period of time not too long ago when liberal Protestants deeply shaped American political history on three core issues, social welfare, race relations, and international relations. In this interview, we get into the broad overview of these themes, and if any of them interest you and you enjoy a good academic read, I highly recommend you pick up the book. Gene is an assistant professor in the Department of History at the University of Buffalo, part of the State University of New York schools, and holds a Ph.D. from the University of California, Berkeley. He completed his postdoctoral work at the John C. Danforth Center on Religion and Politics in Washington University in St. Louis. I hope you enjoy listening to this Upwards conversation with Gene Zubovich. Great. Well, Gene, it's great to talk to you here on the podcast today. Uh, If we could just start, just give us a sense of how you came to the study of history and particularly how you got interested in the topics related to your book that we're going to talk about.
2: I should start off by saying, since we're going to be talking about the Cold War and liberal Protestants, that I am not now nor have I ever been a liberal Protestant. (laughs) Um, I was born in the Soviet Union and what today is um, the country of Belarus. Um, I come from a Jewish family. And my parents were refuseniks back in the 70s, which means uh, when they tried to leave the Soviet Union, they were refused uh, exit visas. So they are forced to stay until uh, 89, which is when uh, I left with, uh, along with my parents and my brother. Um, And so I think partly because I have this biographical history, I've always had an awareness of the importance of the history of human rights and the importance of Uh, religious liberty and other issues that are tied to my research, but I never expected to be a historian of Christianity or Protestantism or liberal Protestantism. I didn't know much about uh, this community and I kind of stumbled upon it by accident. I had read a book written in 1940s by a Congregationalist minister, which in my estimation is the most critical attack on segregation written by any white American prior to the 1960s. And so naturally, I was curious, and I looked into his background. And through that process, I came upon a vibrant intellectual and political world of liberal Protestantism. As it turned out, it was also a deeply flawed, uh, problematic world. But these were folks who were You know, heading a movement that attacked segregation, that tried to push for uh, economic um, equality in the uh, mid-20th century, and they fought against militarism. And so all that is to say that I came upon this topic not because I'm a member of this community. I am not. I came upon this topic because I recognize the importance of liberal ecumenical Protestants to 20th century U.S. history and 20th century world history.
0: So it's interesting, Gene, that, uh, you, you come from outside the Protestant fold, the the Christian fold, even, um, was there anything when you started studying, um, the history, uh, trying to get a handle on the theology or, or, you know, to a certain extent, the theology, was there anything that was really just, uh, uh, what struck you as the most bizarre or fascinating, maybe bizarre is too much of a uh, judgment word, but the most fascinating part of sort of learning about this, I think most people who study this probably come from some Christian background, at least that's my experience in the historians I know. But um, yeah, what, what was most fascinating about getting in on that topic?
2: When I started researching liberal Protestantism, I assumed that theology was going to be the most important thing. And so I was living in Berkeley, California at the time, and I headed up to Holy Hill, which is right next to the University of California, Berkeley campus, where there are a series of seminaries. And I started auditing classes because I had assumed that the most important thing um, about liberal Protestantism or religion in general would be theologians. Uh, And so I started studying, you know, Karl Barth, for example, and getting into uh, that background. And so one of the most surprising things uh is um that i was totally wrong about that and <laughs> by, what i mean by that is that as i looked into the history of political activism it was really anybody but theologians who were the most prominent uh figures in this movement uh, which is not to say that theology wasn't important, but to say that professional theologians, those folks in seminaries and universities and divinity schools who specialize in theology, weren't at the forefront of this. So, at the forefront were social ethicists, uh, historians, um, any number of other academics, as well as all kinds of laypersons, you know, uh, various um, uh, lawyers. Um, uh, uh, all, all kinds of activists. So one of the most surprising things is that you know I thought that the history of theology was going to be at the heart of my book, and I was ready to tackle this stuff, and I was eager and excited to learn about this. Uh, but I ended up writing about it um, much less extensively than I thought I would because it were the it was these other fields um, that that I found were most crucial to
0: explaining what was going on in the mid 20th century. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's, I'm sure it's experience a lot of historians have. Um, there's that interesting, there's also that interesting intersection between sort of uh, academic theology and uh, activism. I mean, there is a, there is a an exchange there. It might be limited at various times. I also think of uh, some historians have talked about, you know, lived theology or, or lived religion as one way that you can see certain theological ideas sort of acted out in the world in a way that doesn't necessarily look like they do on a page but are, but are nonetheless animating people. Uh, basic things like, you know, humans are made in the image of God or something like that can, can be really powerful even on the ground. Uh, if, even if the theologians who are trying to articulate those doctrines are nowhere to be found <laughs> among the the people on the ground. Uh, well, thanks for that, Gene. I, I did want to just highlight again, the, the title of the book before the religious rights, liberal Protestants, human rights, And the polarization of the United States. So we'll hopefully get into each part of that title and subtitle. Uh, But I wanted to start by just asking you, who are liberal Protestants? uh, And why did they matter so much uh, for the period we're going to talk about here, basically the 1930s through the 1960s? it's hard to define
2: any religious group with precision, and that's especially true for Protestants who today are divided into more than 30,000 denominations. I was reading uh, yesterday a story in Christianity Today about the founding of yet another branch of Presbyterianism, as if Mm. there weren't enough already. (laughs) Um, And so it's hard to define this uh, group, but um, ecumenical Protestants are sometimes called liberal Protestants or uh, mainline Protestants. And the reason I call them ecumenical Protestants is because I think at the heart of this group and the heart of this movement is the international ecumenical movement. Uh, uh, The international ecumenical movement begins in the early 20th century. And essentially it's a movement to bring Protestant and Orthodox bodies and after the 1960s Catholics uh, get invited as well uh, into some sort of cross-national uh, communion with one another, right? to uh, get to know one another, to find common ground uh, with each other. And so I call these folks ecumenical Protestants just because uh, ecumenism is so central to how they think of themselves and the way in which they act out their politics. Uh, and so that's that's the start of my definition. Um, ecumenical Protestants probably constituted at mid-20th century about a quarter to a third of the US population, uh, depending on how you count them, but that's not what made them important to American life. What made them important is that these were disproportionately wealthy and white denominations. There were probably about 30 of them in total. The most important of which are sometimes called the seven sister denominations. So these are the United Methodists, Northern Presbyterians, American Baptists, Congregationalists, Episcopalians, and, you know, uh, I always miss a couple when I list these things. But, um, uh, and I should say that, you know, African American denominations were also uh, invited to join the ecumenical movement. Um, So the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, was a part of this movement as well, but these mainline, um, you know, seven sister denominations are disproportionately wealthy and white, and they're full of folks who have their hands on the levers of power in the United States. So if you were in charge of anything big in American life prior to the 1960s, if you were the president of the United States, a member of Congress, a Supreme Court justice. A corporate executive, a university president, and the list goes on and on and on. Odds are you came from an ecumenical Protestant denomination. And so even though the story that I tell in before the religious right is diffuse, it's about Protestants all over the country and really all over the world. There is a real power elite at the heart of this story. There are uh, many of the executives and leaders of this community live in and work in a few square blocks of midtown Manhattan uh, prior to the 1950s when they all moved to a single building in the Upper West Side um, that they affectionately call the God
0: Box. <laughs> That's great. And uh, yeah, so just to to maybe summarize, Gene, how important ecumenical Protestants were during this period, um, I would imagine, I, I'm pretty sure every president uh, came from one of these mainline denominations more or less um up to this point um and i would guess most senators unless you were catholic probably came from one of these denominations and so it's probably hard for um people who who don't remember that time or weren't alive during that time to appreciate how uh, how dominant mainline protestant i call it mainline liberal ecumenical protestantism was to shaping the culture and government of the United States at the time. So we're really talking about the group uh, de- defined religiously here, the group that um, really had its hands on the levers uh, of power. Um, okay, well, uh, w- the book uh, is divided really into two main parts. Um, and I want to spend time on both. And the first part called One World and uh, roughly covers the period in the 1930s. And 1940s, and uh, you know, one of the things that uh, you start with, Gene, is talking about the Great Depression and the New Deal, and how it really set the tone uh, for your story and for the trajectory of ecumenical Protestants um, for the next generation. So, talk to us about the New Deal, um, the Great Depression, that era of the 1930s, and how it it sort of reshaped ecumenical Protestantism. So in the book, I talk about, um, uh,
2: I I make three large kind of overarching arguments. Um, The first is that liberal Protestantism was central to American political liberalism in the mid-20th century. The second argument is that international engagement was crucial and central to U.S. political liberalism in the mid-20th century. Um, we tend to think of this era, at least after World War II, as an era of American exceptionalism. But through the ecumenical movement, many Americans continue to engage with the broader world um, in ways that weren't um, just about exporting American values you know, uh, abroad. And the third argument is um, that in the activism of liberal Protestants, you could see the emergence of recognizably liberal and conservative camps and the emergence of the political polarization um, with which we're so familiar today. And so I just wanted to state that off the bat because I think historians have missed something really crucial about the Great Depression in the 1930s. They've missed essentially how important liberal Protestants were to this era. Um, And the reason I think they've missed it is because ever since Richard Hofstetter. uh, It's a famous historian. He wrote a book in 1955 called The Age of Reform. Uh, Ever since this book, historians have essentially argued that what made um, mid-century liberalism or the New Deal order unique is that it left behind the moralizing politics of the earlier progressive era. And I think he gets this wrong. um, And that's because the story that historians have told about the great depression and the response to it um, uh, uh, the reason the historians get this wrong is because um, they don't see how liberal protestants themselves had been transforming uh, prior to the 1930s and so i'm going to tell you a little bit about um, the most famous liberal protestant that nobody has ever heard of, a guy named G. Bromley Oxnum. Dan, you uh, might have heard of him, but I'm assuming most He has most of
0: probably them. the best uh, mainline Protestant name you could imagine, G. Bromley Oxnum. They yeah. don't name him like they used to. Exactly, yeah. Uh,
2: yeah, there are a lot of three... Three named people uh, in the mid 20th century, so he's kind of emblematic of, um, you know, liberal Protestantism, ecumenical Protestantism in this era. And I think getting a sense of his background really helps us understand, you know, what liberal Protestants are doing in the 1930s. So he comes from a well-to-do family. He's the son of an engineer. Uh, he grows up in Los Angeles, and he attended elite universities. Finally. Uh, getting his um, doctorate at the Methodist-run Boston University School of Theology. And then he comes back home to Los Angeles soon after this and founds um, the Church of All Nations, which is not a, a kind of a typical church. It's a essentially modeled on Jane Addams's famous social settlement house. Um, so it's a Uh, institution that provides social welfare to the local community, charity. Um, It provides services and community events in Giddish and Japanese and Spanish. Um, And so G. bromley Oxnam is in many ways an inheritor of the social gospel, but he's also somebody who's shaped by the ecumenical movement and internationalism uh, as well. So in the late 1910s, right after World War I is over, he embarks on what is then known as a study mission, and it's funded by the wealthy socialist evangelist Sherwood Eddy. And one of the places that Oxnam travels to is India. Uh, He arrives there in 1918 and spends much of 1919 there as well. And on this trip, he's a kind of classic ugly American. Now, this would change later on, but, uh, he has a really bad impression of Indian society and a bad impression of Indian religion. He complains about the sexuality in Indian temples. He says, you know, I've never found anything this bad in Paris, which is, you know, quite, (laughs) quite an insult. Um, he's also a supporter of British imperialism in 1919. So he is there for the Amritsar massacre, uh, when the British put down an anti-colonial rebellion. And he essentially writes in his diary that, you know, the British, the um, Indians got what they deserved, uh, more or less. So in 1919, Oxnum exhibits some of the key features of the progressive era politics of American Protestantism. So he thinks about social welfare as a form of charity. He's obsessed with sexuality and bodily self-control. Um, He is a supporter of um, European imperialism and American imperialism. But over time, on further trips abroad, all of these features transform. So in the 1920s, he travels quite a bit to Britain and he meets with Labour Party officials and he figures out what they're doing. And in 1926, he makes the first trip to the Soviet Union, uh, where he meets with, you know, several leaders, including Stalin himself, but the person that was most impactful, the person who um, changed his mind most was the Soviet foreign minister, Georgi Chicherin, who who made it clear to Oxnum uh, that the Soviet Union was going to help bring about imperialism in Asia, the end of uh, imperialism in Asia. And so through these encounters, what you could see over time, you know, as Oxnum tracks this in his diaries, is somebody who becomes much more oriented towards labor movement, somebody who's much more critical of colonialism, and who's much more pluralistic in his outlook. And so in Oxnum's transformation in the 19 teens and 1920s, we could see the confluence of the social gospel tradition with Wilsonian internationalism. And we could also see that liberal ecumenical Protestantism is changing on the eve of the Great Depression and on the eve of the New Deal in ways that would make them uh, natural cooperators with Franklin Roosevelt and folks who'd had no trouble squaring their religious beliefs with their political commitments in the 1930s.
0: So Oxnum is a, you'd say he's sort of a, a prototypical example of a a change that's happening among a number of of leaders at the same time. So these study tours, there's a number of people taking them, not just Oxnam. People are um uh so these this younger generation of white liberal Protestants is uh really reshaping their worldview uh to um to think more pluralistically more uh, in terms of uh, a welfare state i think of also sort of the, the visits to britain and the long the longer british history of thinking about sort of christian socialism or the the intersection of christianity and a welfare state that must have been really influential on on someone like oxnam as well um, but th- that's happening sort of at a generational level is that what you'd say for that uh, for that generation that comes of age in the 1930s I think that's
2: absolutely right. Um, this is, you know, a story of a group of people who kind of travel abroad in the 20s, you know, start taking positions of power in the 1930s. Um, they're, you know, at their peak from the 1940s to the 1950s, and then end up retiring. And some of them pass away in the 1960s. So it's a story of a of Oxum's generation. And these study missions aren't the only ways in which they get exposed to the broader world. You know, the ecumenical movement is meeting um, across the world at conferences. Missionaries are deployed abroad and they're encountering foreign ideas and foreign thought as well. So this is just one example of a broader transformation that ecumenical Protestants of Oxen's generation are undergoing.
0: Yeah. So as we continue to talk about this first part of the book, where we're really looking at the formation of a... Um, of a very influential uh, vision for the world and it, sort of the growth of certain institutions that are going to try to enact that vision. Gene, what what particularly are Oxnum and his colleagues in the ecumenical world, what are they thinking about, particularly economics, thinking about the 1930s? What's their vision for how society should reform to be more just in economic terms?
2: There are... Concerned about the labor movement. They're concerned about urban poverty. Um, they are uh, deeply worried that the traditional answer that the United States had given to all of these economic problems, uh, which is that churches should, you know, um, uh, dole out charity to people around them and private. Enterprise and private initiative is primarily responsible for the people's welfare. That this isn't enough, that the Great Depression is of such magnitude that um, there is, uh, uh, that, you know, uh, churches aren't going to be able to do all the work. And so essentially what they're embracing is a, you know, Legal reform that allows for unions to spread across the country and to demand more fairness, uh, more fair, you know, wages and working hours for workers. They want more and better government regulation of the economy, but especially in ways that empowers, uh, impoverished people. And so during this time, you know, people like Oxnum are ready to step in because they had been traveling abroad. They've been t- taking detailed notes on what other countries had been doing, and they're ready to bring to bear the kind of reforms that had been happening in, say the United Kingdom or in Germany in the 1910s and 1920s, way before the United States, they're bringing those ideas to bear on American politics.
0: So, you know, someone who is is just listening to this might think, um based on the positions that ecumenical Protestants are taking around um, around social welfare and poverty relief, that uh, they sound like uh, New Deal Democrats in a way. Uh, is it right to think of them as part of sort of the democratic coalition or is that not the right uh, framing for ecumenical Protestants?
2: I think that's more or less right. I mean, you know, it's a broad community. And so some, some folks are further to the left, you know, folks like Reinhold Niebuhr are committed socialists in the 1930s. And so they're running, you know, to the left of Franklin Roosevelt. Others, of course, are much more conservative. But on the whole, it's fair to say that um, the uh, that many ecumenical Protestant leaders are subscribers to the New Deal. Uh, It's also fair to say the opposite, too, that many of the ideas that Roosevelt, um, you know, puts into place during his New Deal reforms um, have religious roots, um, are being championed by ecumenical Protestants before Roosevelt takes office. And so, whether, you know, ecumenical Protestants are reflecting the values of the New Deal or the New Deal is reflecting the values of
0: ecumenical Protestants, I think both those things are right. That's great. Yeah. And you have a number of um, interesting quotes in the book from people like Roosevelt, who are framing what they're doing as sort of uh, with a religious background, or at least a moral framework that aligns with ecumenical Protestantism as well. So you can really see it in in how Roosevelt's talking as well. And this is so important that,
2: you know, these ideas that the government ought to help Americans and you know work to give them a decent life is a really tough sell right in this country, as we know. Uh, and so having the sanction of the largest, most product, powerful religious community in the country at that moment is really important for why this works, right Having the most uh, prominent religious leaders saying this is a reflection of Christian values um, is one of the reasons why, reform is able to take place in the first place in a country as devout and religious
0: as the United States. Yeah, that makes sense. So alongside uh, this uh, focus on economics and economic justice that really animated ecumenical Protestants in the 1930s, uh, one of the other key themes or or focuses, Gene, that you have in the book is on race and segregation and how ecumenical Protestants were at the forefront of trying to fight against uh, racism, structural racism in American society. Tell us about how that became one of their core causes. One of the things
2: that I noted when I started doing research for this book is that prior to 1946, um, ecumenical Protestants talk a lot about Race prejudice—that was the phrase they used—and they had been talking about that for a long period of time. You know, 1910s, 20s, 30s, and uh, and starting in about 1946, they switched how they were talking about this. They stopped talking about race prejudice and they started talking about segregation as the problem. And for me, this is an important shift. It's a shift in language, but it's also a shift in the way that they were thinking about racism and what they were going to do about racism. So. For me, um, race prejudice connotes, um, you know, changing hearts and minds, um, bringing people together, whereas dealing with segregation connotes um, solving the deeper structural problems um, uh, that you know that are created by racism in American society, and so. In making that switch and calling attention to segregation beginning in 1946, ecumenical Protestants become some of the first predominantly white institutions and communities to call out segregation by name and to call for its immediate abolition. African-Americans had been doing this for a long time and they were one of the first predominantly white organizations, uh, maybe with the exception of the American Communist Party to say we need to end. Uh, segregation in the United States. And so for me, this was a uh, powerful transition and one that signaled, you know, a deep commitment in the ensuing years to tackling the tougher kind of structural underlying, um, uh, uh, you know, problems created by American racism that weren't just going to be solved by bringing folks together uh, across racial boundaries.
0: Yeah, that must have been... Uh, uh- uh, politically or even uh, in the church world, costly f- to, to bring this issue to bear. How What was the relationship between these leaders who really started being convinced that racism, uh, segregation uh, was a, a significant social problem uh, and their relationship to the broader ecumenical Protestant world, which include millions and millions of uh, just church going Christians who um, who may not be as invested in an issue like that?
2: So I should start off by saying that you know even back in the 20s and '30s, the idea of talking about race prejudice, that race prejudice is a problem that Christians should come together and you know swap choirs on interracial Sundays or swap ministers for a day, even that was so controversial that several denominations uh, didn't take part. and so I don't want to make light of this earlier era. Um, but, uh, you know, once you start talking about segregation as an issue, people are going to get up in arms. Uh, what's remarkable, I think, is that, you know, it, it probably won't surprise you to know that um, this was deeply unpopular in the pews, right? You know, most American churchgoers didn't understand why their uh, ministers or preachers were heading off to Selma to march with radicals, you know, as they thought of him, like Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and so there was a lot of resistance in the pews. Uh, but despite that, um, there uh the kind of national leadership, the clergy, the national leadership, the international leadership gained enough um, sanction for their views, gained enough support that they're able to, you know, put these out, um, uh, uh, you know, to the American public all through the '40s, '50s, and '60s, despite the controversy. And so you could see in these, you know, debates about racism, two things happening. On the one hand, ecumenical Protestants are helping transform American society. They're allying with um the you know african-american-led civil rights movement they're doing important work in aiding you know the naacp and the southern christian leadership council in ending segregation so that's one effect of of, um uh, anti-racist activism among ecumenical protestants uh but the other thing you see happening is that this creates a cleavage in the protestant community um you know uh Folks, especially in the U.S. South, but really all across the country, um, are upset that their leaders are calling for an end to segregation, and they start organizing right against the clergy and against the national leadership of the um, of uh, ecumenical Protestants. They start, you know, writing letters, uh, uh, complaining about the National Council of Churches and the World Council of Churches because they're saying, you know, segregation must end. Uh, And so over the long term, there's a real sort of cleavage and um,
0: a divide that forms in ecumenical Protestant communities. Yeah, and we'll return to that uh, cleavage in the second half of the book. Gene, you mentioned the National Council of Churches, uh, which was called the Federal Council of Churches before that. Todd, just can you give us a sense of what was that organization about? And that really is sort of the locus of, of a lot of um, these major statements around economics or race, uh, or as we'll get to international relations as well. But yeah, what, what was the Federal Council of Churches uh, about? The Federal Council of Churches was the major national
2: organization um, ecumenical organization in the United States. It existed from 1908 when it was founded until 1950, when it was renamed um, and reorganized as the National Council of Churches, which still exists to the present day. The way to think about the Federal Council and the National Council of Churches is essentially as a combination of a think tank and a political action committee. It represented you know, the major ecumenical denominations, and it did a lot of the intellectual work. It would bring together folks to think through problems like segregation or economic inequality or the Cold War. Uh, and it would also act as a kind of lobbying arm, right? Organizing the broader ecumenical Protestant community to bring their ideas uh, to bear on politics in Washington DC. And there was another institution called the World Council of Churches that did much the same thing internationally. This was um, uh, a an organization finally founded in 1948 after being delayed by uh, World War II, and it did much the same work on an international scale as the National Council of Churches did on a national scale.
0: Yeah, so I like that that combination—a um, think tank, a political action committee or group and also i imagine uh organization both the national council and the world council that had to balance widely different interests and perspectives um either on the national level or the global level um that uh and those perspectives really did come to bear on the issues that they were talking about um and i think we'll get to that a bit when we talk about uh, the cold war as well and world council of churches um Well, I want to highlight the third sort of big, uh, through line in the book, and that is, um, international relations or the, you know, the, the, the new deal and the great depression, uh, American race, uh, segregation. These were both happening within the context of monumental changes on the global scene. Um, including the rise of, of fascism and then World War II. So Gene, how did the ecumenical Protestants understand that those developments through World War II, and how did they respond?
2: In many ways, my book
0: is about
2: the ways in which new ideas emerging in the international arena was imported through the conduit of ecumenical Protestantism and um, was brought to bear on American politics. So it's really a story about Americans traveling abroad, becoming inspired by what was going on in the rest of the world, and seeking to change the United States in light of this new knowledge. And so one of the ways they did this was through the ecumenical movement, which all through the 20s and 30s was developing new ideas about world order, about international governance, and about human rights. And the peak moment Uh, of this exchange between the international arena and U.S. domestic politics happened in the 1940s, just after the United States joined World War II in late 1941. Ecumenical Protestants uh, essentially said, we will support the war effort on the grounds that the United States supports a just and durable post-war peace and that America becomes a country that's worthy of that peace. And so in 1942, G. Bromley Oxnum brought in John Foster Dulles, who most people know as Dwight Eisenhower's secretary of state in the 1950s. But in the 1940s, Dulles was um, a prominent uh, international lawyer as well as a Presbyterian layman. And Dulles, along with Oxnum, launched the World Order Movement. Uh, which was the largest religious political mobilization um, probably since prohibition uh, in the United States. And so this movement rallied millions of Americans across the country for a just post-war peace. Um, You know, the ecumenical Protestants became some of the most important supporters of what became the United Nations and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And they tied these international ideas to domestic reforms. So while they were rallying Americans on behalf of peace, they were also rallying Americans uh, on behalf of uh, domestic transformations that they believed would make peace after World War II ended much more likely. So things like, you know, um, economic equality um, uh, and getting rid of racism and segregation in the United States.
0: Yeah, and that's um, <clears throat> that that connection between the international and the domestic uh, spheres uh, is one of the most interesting tensions or or framings in the book, Gene. It it helps also link uh, issues like human rights, which you spend a lot of time in the book on. Which I think most Americans, uh, most listeners will probably think about human rights as sort of a, a a foreign policy issue, or an issue that's um, more about um, other countries. Uh, I know the U.S. State Department released sort of a human rights report every year, and it's about other countries and and where the the problems are there. Uh, but you're showing in your book how that 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 same framing of human rights for these ecumenical Protestants was also really about things close to home, including economic and racial inequality. Would you say that's right? That human rights is sort of this. Um, category that these Protestants used uh, as much at home as as to talk about the rest of the world. When we think about human rights today it's
2: uh, we think about you know things taking place far away from American shores and we think of them as sort of political crimes, a new uh, uh, you know a new arena of wrongdoing you know so imprisoning political prisoners in Chile for example, would be one example of a human rights violation. but in the mid 20th century, Uh, in the way that ecumenical Protestants thought about human rights. You know, they thought about human rights as essentially a kind of moral and legal expression of God's law uh, that applied to everybody equally. So it wasn't just for people overseas, it was for Americans as well. It was a universal set of rules that the whole world could come around um, and, you know, uh, try their best to respect. And so for these reasons, right, human rights didn't displace other areas of concern in the way the historian Samuel Moyne argues in the 1970s he basically says that you know human rights pushed to the side right other um, other kinds of um, you know left-leaning political commitments um, they merged with them right mm-hmm. so one example of how this worked is that um, I mentioned in 1946, the Federal Council of Churches became one of the first predominantly white organizations to call for an end to Jim Crow, but they did publicize it um, very widely to church communities in the United States. They essentially knew that this would be deeply unpopular and they tried to hide this. But in 1948, uh, a week before the Universal Declaration of Human Rights had uh, been adopted, by the United Nations, the Federal Council of Churches put out a human rights statement. And it essentially, you know, listed all the things you would uh, expect uh, in a human rights statement. So, you know, stuff about, um, you know, right to to join a labor union, you know, the right to um, political participation, the right to free speech and religious liberty and all the rest. But it framed it in a context um, where they made it clear that segregation was incompatible with human rights and so human rights became the vehicle that the new position of the Federal Council of Churches against segregation was delivered to the American public and as a result front page headlines across the country right, said that you know the Federal Council of Churches is taking a stand that racism in the United States is a human rights issue and so in the United States things like you know segregation and the movement against segregation and human rights became deeply intertwined in the mind of the American public in a way that I, I think had didn't happen
0: elsewhere in the world at that time. That's very interesting. Um, well, I want to shift to the second part of the book. I think, I think actually right where you ended there might be uh, that sort of 1948 period, the uh, Declaration on Human Rights might be um, In some ways like the the high point of uh of of ecumenical protestant influence in um american politics and american liberalism the second half of your book which you call two worlds uh uh, shows uh the fallout or or the complications that arise from really the success of ecumenical protestants up until that point um where would you, Where would you want to go in sort of just talking about that that um, that second part of the narrative? Um, what sticks out to you is sort of the key shift that happens that really uh, uh, complicates um, the project that ecumenical Protestants are pursuing? Two worlds refers to
2: the new political climate um, created by the Cold War, the division of the world into, you know a, a bipolar world. Um, ecumenical Protestants had been excited about the prospect of creating global unity, right? Uh, some kind of a world government. The ecumenical movement promised to bring people together across national divides and starting, you know, the, the, after World War II. But certainly by 1948, it became evident to ecumenical Protestants that the world was increasingly divided into a liberal capitalist first world, uh, communist socialist second world, and, uh, a third world that was, you know, uh, um, you know, stuck in between uh, these two warring camps, and so on the one hand, right, it's this kind of new political climate that they're trying to uh, navigate, and one that you know creates a lot of hostility for many of their initiatives back in the United States. So that's one part of uh, this title. The second part of the title uh, is that more and more, right, especially you know, with the Cold War, um, that the This community becomes divided into two camps. Eventually, these two camps are going to be recognizably liberal and conservative camps in the way we understand these terms today. And so, as ecumenical Protestants are trying to, you know, diminish income inequality, they're trying to end segregation, they're trying to end America's reliance on military force, um, these initiatives are splitting their community apart uh, into two camps, um, and this happens in several different ways. Um, uh, people like John Foster Dulles, who were once allies of, you know, the Federal Council of Churches, start, you know, um, start abandoning this organization and and you know um, sever ties with this organization. Uh, you also have um, a lot of um, uh, a lot of folks in the pews um you know who are starting to uh rebel against what the leadership of this um uh community is doing and you also have you know some regional divisions too so you know american southerners for example uh in the pews are are deeply upset about what the you know the federal national council of churches are doing and so they start moving in more conservative directions as well
0: Yeah. And this is where it's interesting to um, return to your title before the religious right. So I think there's a pretty uh, common story about where can where political or religious conservatism and, and political conservatism meet. And it's it's centered on evangelicals. It's centered on the 1970s, a backlash against the 60s counterculture, Roe versus Wade in 1973 um all there's all types of different ways uh, historians try to describe um the rise of the religious right um you're offering a, a much different perspective on that and actually um uh and maybe i'm putting words in your mouth but tell me tell me if this is uh where you're getting is that um actually a big part of the story is the breakup um or the splitting into two worlds of the mainline Protestant world of the ecumenical world, and that a lot of the the energy and juice for the religious right actually comes out of um, alienated uh, uh, mainline uh, laity or or you know people in the pews, it, even as their leaders uh, were uh, quite progressive and were pursuing um, this vision that they had for for decades. Um, they they sort of went ahead of their congregations, and so many of those people in the pews actually become um, the foot soldiers of the of the Christian right or the religious right. Is that is that sort of where you're trying to um, maybe intervene on that story? I think that's right. Yeah, I think that a lot of the divisions
2: we're familiar with today have roots long before the '70s, long before the rise of the Christian right or the religious right, and we could see um in the splitting of the mainline community into two camps um you know recognizably liberal and conservative uh, religious identities that eventually become political identities uh, we also see the um a created creation of an opening right a kind of space as the the ecumenical protestant movement uh, experiences uh, experiences a period of crisis um, they're not able to as effectively counter what today we would call the Christian nationalism of, you know, of uh, religious conservatives. And so it's partly it's that, you know, a lot of the animating force that we think of as the religious right comes out of, you know, disaffected uh, conservatives and some of the laity in mainline ecumenical churches. But also that, you know, the leaders of the National Council of Churches were really effective at providing a counterpoint, right, a, you know, an oppositional force in national and global politics to the Christian right. And so as they go into crisis, they're no longer able to do it as effectively and they create a kind of political vacuum that the Christian right is able to step into.
0: Well, I, I don't want to, um, totally, uh, jump into the religious right just yet. I want to ask one more question, um, about this vision for this ecumenical vision uh, for society. And you talk a good amount about the, um, the responsible society. So it's this particular, um, uh, vision for society that you might put alongside the great society or other sort of popular, um, uh, plans for where American reform should go. Tell us a bit, just give us a sense of what the Responsible Society was about as sort of just a a touch point on where ecumenical Protestants were in the 50s and 60s.
2: The Responsible Society is first articulated at the inaugural meeting of the World Council of Churches, which takes place in Amsterdam uh, in the Netherlands in 1948. And essentially, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, the Responsible Society says that power by which they mean economic power is beholden to God meaning you know a set of universal rules is articulated by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights so a power is beholden to God and to the people whose welfare is affected by it So you know anybody who has a high degree of economic power if you're a corporate executive let's say right you have to you know obey moral law, and you have to think about the way in which your power, your concentration of wealth and capital affects the, the uh, people in your community. And so this is a simple idea that ecumenical Protestants understand as a kind of endorsement for the welfare state. Um, they think about this as, you know, um, because they believe that, you know, power isn't going to tame itself, right? That, you know, um, uh corporate executives aren't going to have a change of heart they need to have some restraint placed around them so essentially they start supporting reforms that in europe becomes known as the welfare state in the united states it becomes known as um, a mixed economy right so this is you know kind of the era of a lot of corporate regulation, relatively speaking, in you know for the United States, um, this is an era of you know high um, income tax rates uh, in the United States and an era of relatively low uh, economic inequality. And so, the responsible society is one of these international ideas right, articulated by global Protestantism that gets imported into the United States and is a theological justification um, for defending a set of political. Propositions that are oftentimes, you know, unpopular, right, with Americans, and so it's an example of the way in which global, you know, religious discourses shape American politics, and it's also an example of the important role that liberal Protestants played in defending and upholding, you know, by through theological sanction, um, you know, an economic system uh, that lessened economic inequality and. At least for a time, ended up taming corporate power in the United States.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Um, when just this this just came to mind when when we talk about and and you describe really well the way that um, ecumenical Protestants really shaped or helped shape the New Deal um, by the 1960s. You know, the next big reform movement you might say uh that's in that same tradition as the great society do you see a similar um at that point uh, is is the influence of ecumenical protestantism on the decline as such that you wouldn't see that same shaping of of the great society or do you still see that deep interconnection um even in the mid-1960s
2: i think that people are wrong to ascribe Um, Scholars are wrong to ascribe the sort of decline or crisis of liberal ecumenical Protestantism to the 1960s. I think that's when certain kinds of demographic shifts begin. But at the same time, it's also very much the height of their power in in the sense that, you know, even though they're facing challenges and rebellions from the laity, they're facing, you know, uh, insurgent uh, evangelical movement, um, they're facing you know, conservative opposition in their own community. Um, this is where we could see a lot of their efficacy, and we could see it in the civil rights movement uh, and yeah. their support for that. We could see it in the anti-Vietnam protests in which they're taking the lead, and we could see it in the Great Society as well. Um, and so there are lots of ways in which, you know, these two things are intertwined. A lot of the language that LBJ uses to defend the great society and articulate it as a kind of spiritual mission, I think, owes a great debt to this community, which is not to say that there aren't others, um, but, you know, uh, ecumenical Protestantism is still politically and, uh, and uh, vibrant uh, at this moment. And so I very much see these two things as interlinked. Um, And so while I think it's, you know, while I think it's important to note that the 60s are a kind of moment of rupture um, and the beginning of decline of this community, they still haven't yet lost the kind of cultural capital that they wield. Um, They're still, you know, in many ways, um, politically effective and in some ways because, you know, uh, their move to the left in the 60s. uh, is in a sense kind of freeing. Um, it ends up being, you know, much more politically effective than a lot of the stuff they had done in previous decades.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I think there's the, the pre- you correct me if I'm wrong on this stat, but I'm pretty sure church attendance in American society sort of peaked in 1969. I think that's the year, um, people point to. So that, that's just one small metric to indicate that through the sixties, um, you know, sitting in the '60s, you you you're anticipating further and further growth, and there there'd be no reason to think um, that there was a decline. Um, you know, in, in the future, I guess, at least if you're looking at attendance numbers, um, which of course is just one metric. But um, yeah, that's that's very helpful. Re- rethinking um, the world of the '60s uh, in this story. Uh, well, Gene, I want to ask um, uh, just two more questions. The first is uh, where we might see the legacy of ecumenical Protestantism and particularly the efforts that you talk about, um, today. So do you, do you see sort of the descendants of your generation, um, still active today on the political scene? Uh, if so, you know, where, and, and are they still sort of tapping into the same basic, uh, arguments that were, you know, founded in the 1920s and 30s? this question of
2: decline um, you know hangs over ecumenical protestantism the term the reason one of the reasons they don't use the term mainline to describe this group is because mainline was invented in the early 1960s and it very quickly became synonymous with decline and so to your point i think that there are lots of ways in which we could talk about the continuing relevance of ecumenical protestantism and the most basic one is that Millions of Americans across the United States um, continue to go to ecumenical churches. They continue to be members of this community. Um, They, you know, uh, they forge their political and moral and social and cultural commitments through their engagement with so-called mainline churches and many of the organizations, that they had, you know, built earlier on are still with us today. So the National Council of Churches is still doing important political work, as is the World Council of Churches. So it's one way we can talk about the continuing relevance of this community is that it simply that it still exists and it continues to do really important work um, and is an important part of um, the political landscape today, even though it doesn't get a lot of, um, Uh, A lot of attention. A different way we can talk about this is to say that, okay, despite some of the demographic and financial decline that this community has faced, many of the institutions, the ideas, and the laws that they had helped create are still with us today. So the kind of political victories they scored in the mid 20th century are still with us um, to this moment. You know, the Social Security Act would be one example of this of what I'm talking about but more importantly you know outside of their community um, ecumenical Protestants helped shape groups like Amnesty International the Washington office on Latin America and so not only does the modern human rights movement which isn't today attached to ecumenical Protestantism in obvious ways but has its roots intertwined um, we could see that this the human rights movement today owes a great deal of debt to ecumenical Protestantism. In fact, the very language of human rights, the very language of human dignity uh, that we speak today is very much, um, at least in part, a product
0: of ecumenical Protestant mid-century activism. Yeah, that's really helpful. Also, just uh, for for listeners to note, uh, just a few months ago, we interviewed Kerry uh, Parker, who is the uh, director of the Wisconsin Council of Churches, which is sort of the state level version of the National Council of Churches. So uh, you can go back to that episode. There'll be a link in the show notes uh, to hear about all the work that the Wisconsin Council of Churches is, has been doing during COVID um, and is still doing. Well, Gina, I just have one more question. Um and this is one we ask uh most of our guests who um who who have a book that we're talking about. Um which is just to acknowledge that most of the uh upwards podcast community are Christians and they're coming from various Christian traditions. But um uh, many of the books that we talk about aren't necessarily written to uh, a Christian audience specifically and I I assume that's uh your book too uh with the University of Pennsylvania Press and uh and and uh and the the hundred pages of footnotes at the end, a very academic, uh, impressive work. Um, but there will be many Christians who will read your book. And is there anything you hope Christians in particular take away from this story of ecumenical Protestantism uh, and uh, as you talk about the polarization of society um, that we find ourselves in at the end of the story? I've been
2: thinking about this question of hope. And oftentimes at the end of these talks, you know, you, you're asked to you know, end on a hopeful note, a kind of positive or optimistic note, um, which is hard to do these days. I mean, it's a very, it's a very, you know, Protestant question. It's a very American question, right? Like, what is the, you know, optimistic take we can, we can, we can have here and maybe it's, you know, an American question because it's a Protestant question. <laughs> um, you know, these last couple of months, I've been you know following closely and thinking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which you know is justified at least in part on the grounds of you know combating liberalism, right, through conservative religious values. Um, this past weekend, um, just a mile away from my home, a gunman came to the top supermarket um, and shot. Um, uh, I think it was 12 people um, and, you know, the African-American community uh, next door is still reeling from um, that assault. And this was done by, uh, you know, white supremacists right, uh, claiming to um, speak uh, on behalf of Christian civilization. Um, and so all these things are complicated. I don't want to, like, simplify any of this stuff. But I do think that there is a kind of reckoning that um, has to take place in the United States. Um, You know, I've found some encouragement recently in the last few years um, in the serious conversations that are taking place among, you know, more evangelically inclined communities, among more conservative communities um, about gender, first and foremost, Mm -hmm. right? The place of women uh, uh, and also LGBTQ folks and trans folks in, you know, the Christian community. Um, to a lesser extent, there's also been a uh, you know a conversation about race uh, happening that you know in, in the ways in which I haven't I haven't really seen as sort of an observer of American religion. I haven't seen that until relatively recently. Um, these are mostly concentrated, I think, in you know campus communities. So you're much more likely to hear about this stuff if you're at like Baylor or Wheaton or you know University of Wisconsin than you are if you're you know forty miles west of uh, where you're sitting right now. So I guess the hopeful note, uh, if you could call it that, is that you know I think there's a reckoning that's coming um, uh, for the United States, and you know I think it hasn't quite happened yet, and there's still time to have these conversations, right? There's still time to um, try to do the right thing um, and to try to uh, make a difference. So if there's a note of optimism, I guess that's where uh, that's where it is for me.
0: Thanks, Gene. Um, I'll just add one one of the. Uh, I guess hopeful um, things I took away from your book was just understanding. There's such a wealth of interesting research and and perspectives uh, from these ecumenical Protestants over the decades that sort of gets lost to time. And um, most of us, when we're trying to think about um, you know uh, issues of racial justice in 2022, don't think to go back to. You know a report from the 1960s that um was sort of addressing that issue freshly for the first time or something from an ecumenical perspective but uh, and maybe and this is a historian talking so maybe i'm disqualified but saying that going back to these sources can often bring um creativity or fresh insight on the present even if there are limitations to what um earlier generations uh saw or wrote about um, they, they, they also have, um, that doesn't mean that they're lesser perspectives. It just means they're from a different time and, um, with different, uh, with different values and priorities. But, um, I think you've exposed, uh, just a whole tradition, not that we should celebrate, uh, uncritically that tradition, um, or, or take from it without really, uh, thinking through it. But, um, there's just a lot of, there, there were a lot of interesting books that you, you know, give a, a paragraph to that I you know, took a note and said, oh, I need to, I need to read that uh, in a little more depth or something like that. Um, uh, you do that throughout the book. So, uh, that, that might be a little more hopeful note too, is that there's, there's a lot from the past that we can learn that will actually inform these conversations about, um, uh, about the world and about, uh, our society, um, at the same time. So, uh, thanks, Gene. Thanks for your time. And thanks for, uh, writing the book. Thanks for having me, Dan.
2: really enjoyed this conversation.
1: Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear. Audio engineering by Jesse Koopman and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.